So, Berto, I have a lot of emails here from patrons that I thought you and I would read and we would answer. What do you say, my good friend, Umberto? I love it. Let's do it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. My name is Umberto Casanha, and I pick huckleberries. This first email is from upper-tier patron Nicole from Los Angeles. She writes, I watched a video on YouTube in which a pediatrician discussed reopening school campuses during the pandemic. And she gave the um, link there. She goes on to say, they thought that school campuses, in most cases, should be reopened, and they cited the mental health of children as the reason. They also said that we needed to be honest that some teachers and perhaps children at higher risk would die in this process, but it was worth it. As a mental health professional, what are your thoughts? Would the mental health issues caused by distance learning be so irrevocable and detrimental for the many that it would be worth risking the health and lives of some? End of email. Uh, So I watched the video, and they said the following things. It's like a half-hour video. They said, we need to talk about COVID-19 in a nonpartisan, nonpolitical way if we're going to get through it. They also said that flu, the flu is more fatal for children than COVID-19 is. They said that children don't seem to spread COVID-19 very much. They said that most pediatricians are in favor of children going back to school. They didn't cite any research, by the way. They just made these claims. They said that some areas might have in-person school because the schools are more remote, whereas other areas might opt for having uh, distance learning because of the town that they're in. They also said that kids do need to socialize and that kids are being traumatized by the isolation. They also said that we need to balance damage to children's psychologies uh, with the potential deaths of children and others and teachers. They also said that we need to work together, not against each other. They also said we need to wear masks and keep our distance when possible and that we need to put efforts into prevention so that we can return to a normal life earlier than later. Berto, what do you think? Yeah, this is a straw man city. Straw man city. Do you remember UHF? Spatula city. Spatula city. I feel like we're we're arguing in black and white. Like either we stay shut down forever and no one has fun and everyone's traumatized, or we go back and everything's back to normal. Uh, The fact is this. We can do this mental experiment really easily. If we dialed up the severity of the situation to say, look, uh, this is Ebola level. If you catch it, you puke out your intestines, you die within three days. And it's like, you know, 95% fatality rate, a mortality rate. Oh, and it's airborne. It's going to spread. Everyone's going to stay indoors. And it affects the young even harder. Okay. If it were that extreme, I don't believe there'd be any rational people, well, I'd be surprised, I suppose, trying to argue that we should just power through it. It would be a near Armageddon situation. We'd be trying to barely survive at home. Okay, that's the extreme. Now, the other side of the equation, we have like the flu or even less. But let's just take the flu. The flu is pretty bad. It kills a lot of people every year. Do we lock down every year? No. Do we take precautions? Not enough, but we, we barely, but a little bit, like... Wash your hands, get your flu shot, those kind of things. Okay. But it just doesn't do enough damage. So we do these calculations already as a society. We do them with cars. We do them with 
try to do them with guns, not very well, but we do them. So to be specific on the cars thing, if we are going to have in-person school, that is going to increase the rate at which people will be driving their cars to and from school, which is going to result in a statistical, predictable amount of human beings dying, including children, on their way to and from school. And as you said, we don't say, well, yes, we, yeah, we know, but we have a hard time accepting that or somehow pointing that out, and we will tend to uh, gravitate towards the norm. Well, but it's the norm to go to school. It's the norm to drive yeah. cars. Right. And, so, and so what happens is, like, we do these calculations. Like, this is the thing. It's like, we already do this as a society. So the only, the only question is, where do we draw the line with this current pandemic? And there's, it's perfectly fine to have differences of opinion. So clearly, the right answer couldn't have been do nothing. We know that. Uh, so we must be somewhere in the ra- range of like, well, we, we had to kind of isolate for a while. So now we're just debating how much longer, how soon, how much do we let people go back to school? And I think some states like Washington state has rational policies in place. They say, look, if the case rate drops below this threshold, and they've been very specific about the threshold, we will go back to schools. It doesn't mean the risk is zero. People will die. They've made those calculations. But 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 these arguments, they're pretending that we, and they say we don't want to be political, hint, hint, quote, quote, asterisk. What they're saying is the left needs to stop trying to control our lives. It's bullshit. We are just trying to deal with this. It is uncomfortable. It is traumatizing for all of us. In the calculation that you're standing behind in Washington State, are they privileging enough the negative effects to children for staying home? And it, that's a great question. And it can be debated. Yeah. And different states are doing different things. So I hear and you there's, saying... It, there's no perfect answer. And you're saying you don't know the answer, really, because it's I don't a know. complicated for, thing. Right. For me, if you ask me, based on the data we have so far, no, I don't think that based on the, the, the way the numbers were looking in August. Look, the numbers in July and August in Washington State were much higher than they were in March when we shut down in the first place. So why would I have, as, a, as an official, said, yeah, it's time to go back to school? No, 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 no. That'd be crazy. Now they're dropping. They continue dropping. But we don't know what's going to happen in the fall as things get colder and the flu season hits and all these things. So it's, it's really easy to say, like, hey, kids need to be at school. Yes, of course. But we need to balance that with the reality that their grandparents can die. Right. So that's the question that they're laying out in this video is... And, and to be clear, in the video, they weren't proposing any particular numbers. They were just saying, so what, I watched the video, and I'll tell you what I agree with. I agree that we do need to talk about COVID-19 in a nonpartisan manner because it's a nonpartisan issue. It is a scientific fact that people are dying, and that is, it's a, it's a terrible disease that is way more, uh, you know, catchable and transmittable than other kinds of viruses, way more fatal, way more uh, long-term effects from being infe- and infected. And uh, there's, there's no reason why any politician needs to put a spin on that at all. There's, there's no reason why that needs to happen. <laughs> so I just want to say that. Like, but somehow, and I remember when we first started talking about COVID-19 in the early weeks, I remember for the most part, it was a nonpartisan issue. And now it's like hard to talk about it without it becoming partisan. Anyway, I also agree with 
that kids do need to socialize. And I think I underestimated, I know I underestimated how much effect this would have on kids. I remember when the lockdown first happened, I remember thinking and observing and a lot of kids and teenagers that the kids and teenagers were like, sweet, I get to stay home, homeschool, I get to go on my screens, I don't have to deal with this and that. There's you know a little bit of wiggle room in the chaos. And I thought, I thought that that would be, I predicted that that would sustain itself, that kids would essentially win in this equation. <laughs> They're just like, wait, I get to see my parents all the time. I get to play at home with my toys all the time. I get to go on my iPad all the time, you know, win, win, win. But universally, what became very clear about a month or two into the lockdown, in my town anyway, was that kids and teens were suffering greatly. I mean, this was hard on them. They were suffering and crying and being feeling lonely and getting irritable and, and, you know, getting on their parents' nerves. And, this, and, yep. and there's, there, there was just so much trauma that was happening to these kids that, you know, because this is the first time this sort of thing has ever happened. And so now we know <laughs> that yep. when you don't allow kids to socialize and to do normal kinds of things that, that kids are normally allowed to do, they suffer greatly. Uh, so I agree with that. Um, and the other thing I agree with is that we do need to work together, not against each other. I agree that we need to wear masks. I agree with the video and that we need to keep our distance when possible. And I definitely agree with we need to put efforts into prevention so we can return to normal earlier than later. Um, I agree with all those kinds of things. I also agree with Umberto that it is a hard equation to figure out what the what what weight to put on one thing or the other because there is an equation there it's like yep. the epidemiologists and the policy setters make no doubt about it they put numbers on paper so they ask they you know they go to the experts and they say okay we're getting this number of uh you know positive covid cases per day and here's here's what the curve is looking like this level of infection will resort in a predictable X amount of people dying. And of those people that died, here is the number of lost years. Because this is actually one of the things that they don't like to talk about in the news, which is everyone dies. So the fact that people are dying isn't necessarily the issue. You know, because let's say that someone died a week before they would have died otherwise. Well, that's yep. different than if someone dies 20 years or 50 years before it was predicted that they were going to die. Yep. So I can't remember the exact uh, term for it, but there's a loss of life years, essentially, that you try to figure out. You know, this person died, and according to their, uh, you know, uh, bodily markers, like, you know, they had diabetes, but they were of normal weight and blah, 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 and they were 40 years old. On average, that person lives to X amount of years. When that person died, they we lost this amount of life years. And you put that into an equation and you figure out it, at this rate of infection, these amount of life years are going to be lost. 
if we open up schools, we predict that it will increase the level of infection rate to this amount, which will result in, result in, in this number of life years lost among these people. Yep. And should we open up the schools because of that? That's, that's how they should be thinking about it. And like what the video is talking about and what we've been talking about is just because it's predicted that one person is going to die, that doesn't mean we don't open up the schools. Because when you open up the schools, there's all sorts of vectors of dying when you open up schools. You know, not only COVID, but the flu, uh, yeah. car wrecks, um, you know, kids are exposed to more accidents, these kinds of things, uh, choking at lunchtime, you know, whatever the situation is. And bullying at school. Right. So, right. Like school shootings. There's a small, yeah. small. There's been no school shootings recently. Yeah. Right. So there's, there's always that calculation. And, um, you know, this is the whole death squad thing when they started coming up with this. Anyway, right. it's a very sad calculation that yep. epidemiologists and scientists deal and with. Insurance companies deal with all the time. Right. <laughs> and, and, and so should policymakers. Yeah. What weight do you put on that? What weight do you put on the trauma of kids that is absolutely happening on average? How, you know, like, let's say you have some quotient for the amount of trauma that kids are going through right now. Like, uh, it's, say, on the scale from 1 to 100, you have, like, 85 trauma points or something. Okay, so if we can get the 85 trauma points down to 40... Uh, while only opening up the schools to a half rate, which will resort in, result in this number of people dying. So you, you lose 45 points of trauma to kids, but that results in the death of, you know, a thousand people who would have had an average of 20 years left on their life on average. Right. Is that worth it? And that's, that's this weird calculation that you have to make. And one of the other things that upsets me is that it's not like the the virus isn't some magical thing. Yes, it's incredibly f like frustrating is such an understatement, but this happened to us, to humans right now. This is so sucky, so lame, right? And the virus is definitely not something we can easily deal with. All true. At the same time, it is a biological agent and it has certain rules and it needs hosts to transmit itself and stay alive. It does not survive indefinitely when left by itself without a host. So if we had followed stricter criteria up front and had better procedures, we actually may have been able to open r normally oh, no. the schools. Not may, 100% yeah. certainty. Other societies, this is the grand experiment that the world is going through right now. Right. Let's look at different governmental policies right. and what results. And right. we see what Brazil, their policies did. We see what the United States policies did. Right. We see what New Zealand and Sweden and Germany and the UK and yeah. China and, and South Korea and, and Japan. Compare and contrast. And, and so the reason I get upset is, and I don't know about this video. Maybe I'll give this video a pass. It's just that 
lately I've just seen so many of these misinformation things where the pretense is, hey, 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 I'm just asking a question. I'm not trying to be political. What if we just... But they, that same person or group was the one arguing against the lockdowns in the first place, against the, the, the masks in the first place, against and saying that, oh, it's fine that we don't do the... T-. Like, it's just infuriating because it's like, look, if, if you had listened to the science you actually wouldn't have to make this argument now. Now, on the other hand, everything you said sounds reasonable. Yeah, masks, social distancing, open the schools as soon as possible based on the criteria we can agree with. Is it going to be perfect? No. Are some places going to be a little too restrictive, others less? Yeah. But it's not like we don't have any data, and we know for a fact what happens when this thing is allowed to spread in a community unrestricted, that what happens is the hospitals get overwhelmed, and it becomes a nightmarish, apocalyptic scenario, which is way more traumatic for everyone involved. Yeah. And, yeah, anyway. So. <laughs> Sorry. You touched my nerves. <laughs> no, no, no. Good. I, I, I was saying anyway to me. I was saying anyway. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. I, know. I was about to launch into another thing, which no one wants to hear. And so I told, I said anyway to me. <laughs> Thank you, Umberto, for ranting in a way that a lot of people can get behind and Kirk Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> uh, gripes of wrath, Berto, you got one? Oh, yes. Okay. All right. So in a different episode, we were talking about how like uh, the, the enhanced thing in movies and TV shows that they used to do, or maybe they still do it, where they'll be looking at a cop show at a, at a photo and they're like, enhance, roop, roop, rotate, roop, and stuff that even now we're barely starting to be able to do with machine learning, but certainly at the cutting edge was not a possibility back then. But my gripe of wrath is actually this. As a child and as a young adult, I always had this dream that there was all this tech that I wasn't aware of, that we weren't privy to, that the governments had and the CIA had. Because, you know, we'd watch James Bond movies and he'd have all this amazing tech. And I believed it. Not only did I believe it, I was like, that's what they let us show on movies. Can you imagine what they actually have? And I remember in the 80s learning about the the black jet, what was the, the Sarkovsky, what was it called? The, the stealth, stealth bomber and all those jets, right? Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's the stuff we know about. You just know that the reality is like 20 years ahead. Um, and then... Then I started working in my field of picking huckleberries. And, you know, when I was a kid, I thought they must have all this amazing huckleberry picking tech. But once I got into the industry, I realized, nah, at most, it's like one or two years ahead what you don't see. And it is so disappointing. We don't like the corporate uh, companies like computer companies and things like this have in many cases higher tech than most governments with some exceptions where like the government's able to spend enough money to essentially brute force something into being a few categories better and I was like when I when I realized that I was like that sucks we can't have a James Bond we can't have like I, you know of course the authoritarian nightmare that would develop if they actually had these powers but in my naive mind i was like i want the government to have these crazy tech alien tech almost that we don't know about and it's not real and i'm sad i'm gripey (laughs) next email from mark boland fan from t-rex we've communicated with mark boland fan you know i went to mark i went to mark boland's grave when i was in london because it's really it's in the same you told me that yeah same cemetery as freud and the 
the big draw to that cemetery in London is Mark Boland, not Freud. Anyway, Mark, <laughs> Mark Boland fan writes, I just finished listening to How to Be an Ally episode and really enjoyed it. So just chiming in here, we made an episode about how to be an ally against racism, meaning that if you're not black, if you're not a black American, how are you an ally to anti-racism, anti-white supremacy? So she says, I listened to this episode and really enjoyed it. I do have a question for you, though. I live in Baltimore City, which last time I heard was 70% black. The Freddie Gray protests in 2015 led to the National Guard being brought in. What struck me about the uprisings after his death um, of, uh, sorry, I skipped part of it, but she was talking about uh, George Floyd, right? What what struck me about the uprising after George George Floyd's death was seeing majority non-black cities like Minneapolis, Portland, and Seattle having uprising on a grander scale than even Baltimore or Ferguson ever did. And I just checked Seattle, and it's apparently 0.4% black. Also, these are very affluent cities, Minneapolis, Portland, and Seattle, compared to Baltimore. I'd really be interested in hearing your thoughts on the matter. Berto, what do you think? It's, uh, I think it's a good development in that something must be happening in the last decades where uh, the children being born, some percentage of the children being born in these affluent, domin- predominantly white areas uh, are being raised with empath- empathy and with um, sort of social aw- awareness uh, to where they're not okay just watching from afar because they're not being directly affected. And I think for the most part, that's, that can be really powerful and, and, and useful. Yeah. When you see the protests in Seattle, which I just want to remind everyone that 99.9% of the activism in Seattle was peaceful. It was soccer moms and soccer dads and nice middle-class kids wanting to stand up against police brutality, against police procedures and policies and and training that is not what the population wants. We want police officers. We want them to help us and protect us. We just want them to do it a little differently. You know, we like it when they pull people over for speeding. We like it when they pull people over for running a red light. We like it when they respond to violence on my street, that kind of thing. We don't want them to use brutal force on a person who can't breathe, who isn't doing anything violent, doesn't have a weapon, and there's no need to do that. That's all we're asking. That's it's not a big it's not a big deal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not a big request. <laughs> it's not unreasonable. Totally agree. A hundred billion percent agree. That the the challenge, but I, I challenge the um, the uh, the side of the oppression is that there's so many events that keep happening that, where people die um, at, because of excessive force that uh, things boil over. And then people start actually some per- small, tiny percentage of the population starts actually rioting and, and destroying property and all these things. Uh, and the thing that I said before is, uh, yeah, so like that's bad. But if we don't want that to happen, we have to look at the root causes, not just point a finger and say bad. It's like, yeah, of course that's bad. Right. But the root causes are bad. Right. Now, I'll tell you, my general approach to activism is 
peaceful and that movements take a long time. The gay rights movement over the past couple decades was primarily a peaceful activist program. There were occasional bricks through windows, but for the most part, when you associate the, you know, when you think about gay rights throughout the 90s and zeros and tens, you think of Ellen coming forward. You think of Will and Grace. You think of politicians coming forward and saying, guess what? I'm gay. You think of uh, TV shows like Glee and Kurt. You think of, uh, you know, famous people coming forward and saying they support gay rights. You think of, uh, you think of uh, gay pride parade. You think, you know, th- that's what you think of. And, and, and those are powerful instruments of change and always have been. Uh, Martin Luther King included. And uh, so I'm not saying that I'm in support of violence or throwing bricks through windows. I'm just saying that for some people, if you live in their shoes for 45 years while people around them are being brutalized and murdered and they peacefully protest every single time and they're given promises and they're broken over and over and over again, eventually you're just going to get so angry that you can't help yourself. Yeah, and when they raise up the, the, the image of peaceful protest and they say, why can't you be more like Martin Luther King? And they'll say, you troglodytes, you kill them too. Right. right. <laughs> so it's hard. It's hard to side with the people arguing that a tiny little minority of folks are going overboard when they don't want to have the conversation about why that happens. Yeah. Now, I will say that I have done a lot of research on police badge cams. It's one of those things that I do at 11 o'clock at night on YouTube. Uh, It's one of those rabbit holes I go down. (laughs) And for whatever reason, you know, of the hundred different rabbit holes that I go down. Uh, Last night, I watched the new Smarter Every Day episode. Have you seen it? Where he he shoots a baseball past the speed of sound. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) It's pretty cool. Anyway, uh, I have learned a lot about what police go through and uh, a lot of police go through situations where they really do have to shoot people who are unarmed yep. uh, for reasons that for us who don't live that life have a hard time understanding. And so I, I'm not one of those idiots who just claims that every time a police officer uses lethal force is somehow believing that they're wrong. There, there are a lot of times where I am 100% happy with a police officer doing, uh, using lethal force to protect, to protect my family, <laughs> to protect, yeah. the, protect innocent human lives from, from being harmed, even from someone who you're not quite sure if they're armed. There's also a lot of suicide by cop that's happening that I've seen a lot of unfortunate badge cam video around and someone will act like they have a gun when, when they don't and they'll get shot. And then the news will come out saying like, you know, the police shot another unarmed person. It's just like, well, you have to, let's wait on the whole circumstance. Having said that, there are plenty of examples where it's obvious George Floyd included where it's like obvious. That's why the George Floyd case was just so egregious. It was like in broad daylight, four police officers, 10 minutes, people being, you know, they're obviously being filmed multiple angles and yet they did it anyway. But I, w- I want to get to what your email is talking about, Mark Bolin fan. 
is you say that Seattle is 0.4% black. That is not true. Uh, Seattle is, uh, what percentage black do you say, Bruno? Um, 10%? 7%. Okay. So, uh, and Portland is about the same. Um, and how many Asian American, percentage Asian American in Seattle? By the way, sadly, I think the reason why someone would categorize it as being so low is because uh, black people in Seattle are so underrepresented when you look at things like yeah. companies and media and things, yeah. you know? Yeah, uh, uh, anyways, right. There, what was your question? Asia, well, percentage Asian American in Seattle. And oh, Portland. in Seattle. Ooh, uh, 30%. 15, 15%. Okay. Uh, Minneapolis percentage black. Minneapolis, oh man, uh, 20%? Yep, 19%. Okay. I thought it would be lower than that. I, I didn't know Minneapolis oh, had, because okay. uh, that's actually higher than the national average, which is what do you think? Yeah. Oh, the the national average? Yeah, like uh, 15%. Yeah, thir- 13%. Okay. Baltimore percentage. Uh, 40%? 63%. 63%. Okay. Yeah. So, so majority Mark Boland fan was like, well, Minneapolis, Seattle, Portland, very few black people, but actually Minneapolis has a pretty, you know, not as much as Baltimore, but yeah, but but greater than the national average. Seattle, Portland, absolutely. Very, very, you know, few, but you know, 7%. It's, it's one out of what? 18 people. What is that about? One out of 15? <laughs> yeah. One out of 16 people. 15. What one, out of 15. one out of 15. One out of 14 point. The amount of people in Seattle that are black is oh, I see. 7%. Yeah. That's one out of 14.8, right? Or something like that. I guess, if you say so. <laughs> <laughs> 7 times 10 is 70. That's what I... And 7 <laughs> times 5 is 35. So, so about, about. just a little bit less than 15%. <laughs> one out of 15, sorry. So... That's a lot of, you know, it's a fair, yeah. fair amount of people, but it's obviously not as, it's half as much as what the national average. But as I said, 15% Asian American. So it's not like Seattle right, and Portland. Right, right, It's like all white people. It's just that we have a lot of Asian Americans in Seattle. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so going on here. Oh, uh, in terms of very liberal, slightly liberal, Slightly conservative, very conservative. Seattle and Portland. What? What? Are, where do we rate? I go slightly liberal. No, we're very liberal. We're very liberal. Okay. Yeah, it's it's off the charts, particularly lately. Okay. Uh, uh, Minneapolis. I guess I'm thinking of all the Eastern Washington. That's not Seattle. <laughs> no. Uh, Minneapolis is probably not very liberal. Slightly, yeah. It's slightly liberal. Yeah. Oh, is it slightly liberal? Okay. Yeah, it's slightly. I would liberal. have anticipated it not being. Yeah. Um, it's Minneapolis. It's not all of Minnesota, you know. Dude, I barely know anything outside of Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why does Seattle and Portland have more Black Lives Matter activism these days? Well, conservatives will say that we're entitled, brainwashed, and we're virtue signaling. And radicalized by Soros. Right. And so these are my hypotheses, Mark Boland fan. There are six of them. Number one is that... Seattle and Portland are very progressive with almost no opposition. There's, uh, there's very little support for conser- conservative movements in Seattle and Portland, like police using force, this kind of thing. And so when there's a liberal movement in the United States, Seattle and Portland are 
going to feel, the people there are going to feel like, let's do this thing because no one's yeah. going to stand in our way. No politicians can muster the the force. Um, many police officers are liberal in Seattle. <laughs> and so you're it's it's easier than if you're in Baltimore or Ferguson. Number two is the Pacific. So that's just a hypothesis. It's not obviously, I have no way of knowing if these are factors, but these are just me, you know, coming up with speculations. Number two is the Pacific Northwest, Seattle and Portland included, pays attention to the news and has been getting increasingly angry over the years. This is kind of what Berto was talking about, is that you have a lot of people in the Pacific Northwest who have been angry for a long time. It, you know, George Floyd wasn't the beginning. Uh, right. The other thing is that I kind of believe that people in the Pacific Northwest, this is my number three, we're optimistic about change. I feel like people in yeah. Seattle and Portland have this inherent optimism. I see it around me all the time because I'm not very optimistic. <laughs> people around me are way more optimistic than I am. They're just like, yeah, let's go march about gun you know, restrictions. Right. Let's go march about this. And I'm like, well, what's the point? It's nothing's going to happen, you know, like, but I see it around me all the time. Number four is when you have wealth and young people and education, this usually equals activism. When you look to the history, even around the world, activists and leaders often are young, wealthy, educated people. Che Guevara, yep. you know, was a young, wealthy, educated dude from what was he from Argentina or something? And went, uh, yeah. went to Cuba. I, I can't remember. Yeah, he, he was like a physician or something. I, I can't remember. This, this is actually very common, uh, as you say, around the world. It, it was literally how the revolutionary wars happened in almost every country. Right. So you take the United States. Who were the instigators, the founding fathers? They were the rich, like, yeah. you know, young activists. Same thing in Colombia and Latin America. It was not like... The farmers now they got the farmers on board, but the the instigators were absolutely the young wealthy activists. Right now, I'm not calling Ferguson and Baltimore farmers, but I'm saying that there is so much wealth in Seattle. Yeah, I mean it is filthy rich, and there are so many young people who have a lot of free time on their hands. They don't have kids, and so much education. The average education level in Seattle is like way higher than around, yeah. especially around the world. And so, uh, yeah, as you said, revolutions are, you know, rich, privileged, educated people. Why? Because they have the free time. Two, when you're an oppressed class, you step out of line, you get, you get knocked down. And when you're in the privileged class and you stand up, you can't be knocked down as easy. And so activism is, you know, made more easy. Anyway, Like, for example, slave would not have ended anywhere near when it ended had it required uh, black insurrection only. <laughs> right. It was w white privileged people yeah. uh, getting together and actually dying for the cause, yeah. particularly in the Civil War, to end slavery. Um, you know, that's what it took. Which uh, is and, and, tragic that, yeah. this, that the oppressed can't take matters into their own hands right easily <laughs> yeah that's that would always that's what's always just completely boggles me it's like i always just wonder like have you read history because look to 1960 when there was jim crow laws don't you see how you're acting kind of like the bad guys in that story <laughs> like do, like 
I understand uh, it's not as bad, but yeah, can't yeah. you see that it's kind of a continuation? Yeah. You know, when you look at uh, xenophobic a-holes in the 50s or in <laughs> 1900 who, or like Andrew Jackson, who, the Trail of Tears, like, doesn't that, don't you see, you know, it's, there's this sketch. Yeah, there's this sketch that. The Mitchell um, and Webb. Yeah. Are we, are the, we ba- the baddies? Are we the baddies? <laughs> I posted on, on Facebook the other day because that was all I had left with this one argument. I was like, are we, the, and like, don't you ever wonder, are we the baddies? Yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, at the very least, just like, hmm. Um, number five is uh, we've had we've had our own problems with police in Seattle. It's not like you know we're like ooh bad things are happening with police in other towns. No, we're upset about what's happening in our own town. Things yeah, have happened sh- in Seattle, and it has been uh, empirically measured in Seattle. It just hasn't made yeah. the national news. I actually had a misconception. First of all, I uh, years ago found out that. And I don't know how much it still is, but it, the Seattle Police Department and the King County like, Police, uh, I'm going to say used to be, I don't know, a, a, a good old boys club. <laughs> it was very, very, there was quite a bit of entrenched, you know, like corruption, I will call it or whatever. Um, but what, what shocked me is like in, in recent years, I, I just always assumed that, uh, in fact, I was having this argument the other day. I was like, well, no, I don't think we should defund the police. I think we should actually train them better and pay them better, all these things. Uh, but I did just read an article. How much do you think the top paid cop made in 2019? Well, I read the article too. So okay. it's, it's something like half a million dollars or something. Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, wait a minute. I may not be understanding what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's not cops in general. Yeah. I just thought... There's something fishy going on here. Yeah, and, and, and I was just thinking about this this morning when I was taking a shower as your buying kind of wanders. I was like, I don't think we should be calling it defund the police because that's actually not even what it means. What it means is radical police reform, which, is, well, which, might, which will involve defunding the police. But for but some not, people, it means that, but I, that's not what I think we that's should That's not doing. what the majority of people want. What the majority of people want is for there to be massive police reform and a look at the police budget, which is we are paying the police to do so many different jobs that the police are not trained to do, you know? Uh, So half of the jobs that police officers are being asked to do, let's defund that and fund another force of people that actually respond to mental well, you know, mental health wellness checks and cats in trees and, you know, all the, you know, noise complaints, you know, we don't need some, someone rolling up with like killer instincts and uh, PTSD about the last bus they had, you know, Absolutely. walking into a Like, that's what we mean by defund. We're saying, let's make, let's make what we call the police right now, like a specialized force, which is great to have. And when you have someone shooting up a McDonald's, you want someone rolling up with lethal force at their hip and an itchy trigger finger. You don't want them thinking about stuff, but so many other options are available it's, to us that yeah. aren't those people. And, and it's so, just bad nomenclature. I think it's not, it's not good um, brand marketing. No, it's not good brand marketing. It, yeah. it should be, it, it should be reform, you reform know, or, the or, or specialize. And the, the proof you know. that it's not good brand marketing is that now you have Eamon Bundy essentially on the side of defund the police. <laughs> Yeah. Do you remember the Bundys? They they did that standout 
against the the federal agents. They took over a, a government right. building, and and his whole thing is, yeah, absolutely, we should defund the police because the government shouldn't have the blah blah blah. So if you go far enough in one direction, you circle back around to the other side. Right. Um, so uh, yeah. Number six is over the last couple of decades, we've established a tradition of protest and activism in Seattle and Portland. Uh, so, you know, like um, the World Health Organization riots, the battle in Seattle, 1999 yeah. or something. So we've become known for it. People come here to, to for activism and we're proud of our activism. We're proud of our ability to say, no, you're going to hear us and we're going to make this happen. Now, like I said, 99.99% of what that manifests as are peaceful people in the streets screaming <laughs> and holding up signs and writing letters. And it's letters. unclear what it accomplishes, actually. Well, I think it accomplishes something. I mean, when it's up against such powerful forces, it's, you know, it's hard to do anything when, yeah. when the government doesn't listen, you know, because, you know, look around the world, all government has to do is just not listen, you know. And it's just, I, I lived through a, a period of time in, in late 80s Colombia where uh, the whole thing was uh, people in general were convinced that the real problem was the guerrillas. The guerrillas are the real problem. And, and you know, they, they feared the guerrillas because they would kidnap in, people. In Colombia, unless in people Columbia. don't know. Yeah, in Colombia. And one of the, actually a couple of the guerrilla movements uh, disbanded their weapons, all that stuff, and became political parties. Well, that's what we want, right? Like, peaceful, like, nice, nice, nice. And then they got systematically assassinated one by one. I don't mean like, oh, yeah, for a couple of days. No, no, no. For like two years, almost every single day, one, two people assassinated till the thing was decimated. It was gone. And uh, and so I have this bad taste in my mouth from listening to the power structure telling you, hey, 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 if you just follow the rules oh. and, and, and so go I, peaceful. I didn't, I, I didn't know you what you're saying. So you're saying that the government actually assassinated the guerrillas yeah. turned, polit turned politicians. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, it's, it wasn't the president, right? It was the right wing paramilitaries. But essentially with the wink, wink and a nod, because it was like, we will never forget what you did. So it doesn't matter that you've gone the politics route. We're still going to kill you. Yeah. And for those conservatives listening right now, I, d I just want to say that you've probably heard a lot of weird propaganda. And let me, let me be clear. And I think I speak for a lot of people in Seattle, which is this. We like the police. Some of, some of my good friends are police officers. I want some of the, my best friends are police officers. <laughs> I want the police. There was a time in my life when I thought about being a police officer. The police are good. When I, I grew up in a time when police were considered to be the neighborhood good guy. <laughs> yeah, I've only had good experiences with police, in uh, at least in this country, all my life. Uh, I have not, <laughs> but uh, I've had good experiences and bad experiences. But the, uh, the point is, is that, yes, we want law and order. Of course we want law. Who doesn't like law and order? It's rational to like law and order. We just want some minor changes to be made. It's not radical. It's just an acknowledgement that some, peop some police officers either take it too far or the training isn't careful enough. But 
so many so many things of the training are working. So many actions by police are exactly what we want them to do, especially under the circumstances of having to think in the moment. Yep. So uh, there's there's just a little bit of change, a little bit of accountability, a little bit of humility from police officers of, of saying, you know what, this one we got it wrong. And some police officers are saying that. Some leadership and police are saying that. And maybe a little bit of hmm. Maybe we could look at uh, specializing what we call the police force. These people over here, they have guns and shotguns and and AR-15s. And these people over here, you know what? Maybe we can look at another kind of way of enforcing the law that, you know, we don't need all that firepower and and tanks and that kind of thing. Because we, we want to make the, you know, the public trust us and feel comfortable around us. And we're willing to have those conversations. We don't know what that's going to look like, but we are here to serve the public. And so let's talk about it. Now, some police officers, some leadership are absolutely doing that. And that's all we're talking about. When we're marching, when we're doing our snowflake liberal cuck activism, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about Antifa or you know, anarchy or ignorant uh, notions of throw away the police, like, you know, pundits will say, we are talking about extremely reasonable things that I'm guessing everyone would get behind. Yep. Let's take a break. When we get back, let's read more emails. Berto, what do you say? Let's do it. All right, Berto, if a conservative anti-defund the police politician were to convince everyone to become a patron, what would he sound like? So Rush Limbaugh, do you want to do Rush Limbaugh? Of course I do. Now listen, you think that I'm all about like, oh, these baby leftists don't have rights. They're little babies. That's not it. I just think they can't think straight like I can with both brains tied behind my back. What I think we need is all these little whiny protesters. They need to step into the shoes for just one day of a psychology in Seattle podcaster. Because I guarantee you that if they did, they would become patrons. It's, there's just no other choice. What do you think, Mr. Snurgly? That's right. So you do it, and you'll see I'm always right. <laughs> That's scary. Patron V from Australia writes... I've recently developed death anxiety. I am terrified of dying and leaving my husband alone. I'm terrified of my husband dying. I'm terrified of not existing. I am distressed at the thought of everything and everyone I know ceasing to exist. I am very upset at the idea that at any given moment, I will die and no longer be able to experience life. You've mentioned your death anxiety before, but not specifically how to overcome it. I'm having trouble applying the tips in your 12 Steps to Overcome Anxiety episode. How does exposure therapy work with death anxiety? And how can you stop catastrophizing something that is real, inevitable, and final for us all? I can tell myself that other fears aren't as bad as they seem, or even unlikely to happen, like fear of driving or spiders or failure, but death is unavoidable and final. End of email. Berto, what do you think? Yeah, man. 
Been there, done that. Um, so I don't know if these things are effective, but there's a couple of things that I think of because I do at times get grabbed by the enormity of the absurdity. <laughs> so I sit there and I'm like, but what's the point? And you're like, well, see, that's why you need religion. It's like, yeah, because like, you know, I skip ahead and I'm like, okay, so let's assume one of these religions is real. But what's the point of that God? Like, what's his thing? So like, I go all the way to the end and I say, what's the point? And then I realize, oh, there can be no point. And this all ends and all these little molecules. We, I open my eyes and I see light, right? But in reality, there's just little microparticles and waves just bouncing off of each other. My body is this like totally temporary association of things. Totally. It's horrifying to a human. Really hard to deal with. So, and I've had these. Do you have anxiety? Do you like have a hard time? At times, at times I have, and I have a friend that has been paralyzed so much worse than me and we've had many conversations do i know this person you do someone i no longer talk with but yes okay uh and here's so here's the only things that i found that can even make a dent when you're feeling that way and i don't know if they they work for everyone one is the classic but you weren't around at all for at least 14 billion years maybe longer maybe infinite until you were born why do we not have anxiety about that? And, and I'm not saying like there's an easy answer. I'm just like, ponder that for a little bit. Like the enormity of time behind us and the subjectivity of the flow of time in any direction in the first place and thinking, yeah, I wasn't around for any of that. How horrifying. Think about it. You weren't around for your parents falling in love, being born, your grandparents, nothing, your lineage, nothing, nothing, nothing. For all you know, almost Nothing that you know is real because it was fabricated, whatever. You have no knowledge. Okay, that's one That's one step. The second step, and I don't actually do this, but I know, I know that some people have done it, <laughs> is actually to take more risks in life. And I don't mean like go jump off an airplane without a parachute. I just mean, uh, I just, I, I mean, do more things like uh, travel more. Uh, take up more hobbies. And I, I say this a lot about dating too, but like, but I think, I think the thing is that the more you get busy with the moment, especially if you're doing like sports, like surfing or something that require you really be in the moment, the less you have that mental time to just sit there vacillating about the future. It's a very Taoist mentality. Like just enjoy right now. Yeah. Great. I like it too. Uh, I think that those, the, the second one I think works for me. The first one doesn't work for me um, because I don't have anxiety about the fact I didn't exist before I was born. But why not? <laughs> um, you should. And, and if I never existed at all, that actually makes it terrifies me as all. Well. It's like, yeah. what if I just never existed to begin with? Like that's I, a that's an awful prospect. Like I, I would I would never have even known to to worry about things. Like that's that's terrible to me. So yeah. Uh, to provide some meta commentary for those of you who have this, what we're calling death anxiety, you know, exactly what patron V from Australia and Umberto and I are talking about. If you don't have this, then there's a possibility you're thinking, well, what's wrong with these people? Why do they worry? I don't worry about that. Uh, yeah, sure. Everyone dies, but why do you, you know, just let it go or we're all going to heaven. I don't know. We're all going to be reincarnating. I don't know. Okay. So to those, I'm going to speak to those people right now for a second. You don't get it. <laughs> like, for whatever reason, 
there's a percentage of people that have always existed because you read philosophers uh, staring into the darkness about this going back eons. For whatever reason, there's just some people that just cannot cope easily with non-existence or the possibility of the chance of non-existence. And it's, it's very upsetting. Okay. So, so just accept that it's, it's not, there's not something weird or it's not a choice that Berto and I and V make. It's, it just is what it is. I, that's all I can say. The other thing I'll say is that it's not necessarily a pathology and it's not necessarily something that we can categorize as like, oh, well, well, you know, some people have social anxiety and they're irrational. And so, you know, you just have to work on the social anxiety. Some people have phobias of, you know, um, I don't know, like ants, but it's right. like there's nothing to worry about with ants. Some people have to turn the light switch on three times before they can go to sleep. That's, yeah, there are plenty of irrational things. No, this is different, as Patron V talks about, because it's inevitable. There's a chance, even if you're religious and you believe in an afterlife, there's a chance you know this. That's why they call it a faith. They don't call it a science. They call it a faith. You just have to believe. All of us understand, regardless of religion or not, that there's a chance that when we die, it's over. There's no waking up. There's no afterlife. There's no nothing. It's just lights out. You never exist again. You can never enjoy anything again. Not only you, but the people you love. And everyone that will love the people you love and everyone else beyond that, everyone will cease to exist at a very short period of time in the future when you think geologically. So it's, it's not this, uh, it's not a pathological thing in my mind. As a clinician, I guess I'm biased because I, I do have this experience. But, but that's the thing. Okay, so uh, yeah, patron V, as Umberto said, I can totally relate. It's tough. Um, the short answer is, as Umberto was basically saying, there's no real way to cope or there's no real way to get rid of it because you can use different mental techniques and you can try to be in the moment, but you're never going to be able to get rid of the knowledge and the valence. You know, I've never heard anyone that had a significant dose of this death anxiety that lasted longer than, you know, a year or two able to beat it. I've never heard of that before. And that fact actually makes me feel better. That's one of the things that makes me... So that's one of my tips is that the more I read about other people who... Th- you know, we, we frame it as death anxiety, but the way I might frame it is actually like non-existence awareness. <laughs> like right. Berto and I and V, we have, we have non-existence awareness. And when people have that awareness, you don't get rid of that awareness. You might be able to get rid of kind of the anxiety about it, the, the plaguing, debilitating feelings, but you're never going to get rid of that hard notion of, shit, this could all be over, and I won't be able to enjoy life anymore, and my loved ones won't be able to enjoy life anymore. My past pets and my past loved ones who died, there's a chance that they're just gone. Right. And... That's sad because we're one, it's hard to cope with because uh, when we're young, we have a hard time fathoming that. And then as we learn that, we're like, wait, what? The other thing is, is as humans, we have this excellent ability to just sort of contemplate that, which 
I don't think animals were meant to do, you know? Right. It's not something we have all, well, we, I don't know, but it, it's, it's certainly some of us don't possess the right shutoff mechanisms for it. Yeah. It's a crappy, uh, you know, result of evolution. I mean, there's a whole uh, book on this, you know, uh, why do zebras not have ulcers? Uh, I can't, I think is the name of the book. <laughs> and because zebras are constantly being predated upon and watching their kin die left and right. But as soon as they're out of danger, they're just right back to grazing yeah, and they seem totally fine. The moment. <laughs> Why is that? Well, because, and what's different about humans? Well, it's because humans, because of our abstract ability, we have the, the ability to literally contemplate the infinity of the universe yeah. and the infinity of God. We have the ability to think about uh, God, but like, well, what's beyond God? Right. You know, what's beyond the universe? If, if God created the universe, who created God? I mean, right. it is... It is mind-numbingly terrifying and awe-inspiring to think about that sort of thing. So here's what I do is I try to talk about it with other people. I try to listen to other people talk about it. It really helps to know other people are having these feelings. I don't, the, the epiphany, when it changed from death anxiety to death awareness for me was when I read a study, and, I, and some people ask for it sometimes, but I cannot remember what it was called or where it was. But it was a... A phenomenological study. So maybe look up, you know, phenomenological study on death anxiety or something. And it had 10 interviews, in-depth interviews with people with death, death anxiety. And the researchers coded the different themes that people experience. And I remember reading the study and being like, oh, my God, that's so me. And, it, and <laughs> I remember when I was reading this study, my brain went from terror to where I am now, which is kind of like, well, interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's awful. And there's a lot of us. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the other thing, I, I, I mean, go oh, ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say like, th there's, there's two other things that uh, along those lines. So I didn't look at studies in that sense, but there are two things that I think were similar that helped me. Uh, I think the worst for me was right around when I was 30 and there was a conflation because I think, you know, I grew up Catholic and so it used to be sort of the opposite. I was deathly afraid of hell, right? So I was, my fear wasn't, what if I die and there's nothing? My fear was, what if I die and I go to hell for eternity? That was the fear. And so as I was coming out of that fear, this new realization came in, which was like, oh, but wait, what if there's nothing, right? And so I was dealing with that. And, and then I started, um, two things were interesting. One was, I started realizing, well, when I go to sleep at night, like deep sleep nights, where I don't remember my dreams, I don't, like, I don't exist during that time, uh, consciously. And as far as you know, like, practically speaking, uh, when you wake up in the morning in one of those nights, that could have been the first moment of your existence. You, you wouldn't know the difference. Like, if your memories were implanted, whatever, you would just wouldn't know the difference. Now, I'm not saying that that's the case. I'm just saying that it, you would not be able to tell the difference. So, practically speaking, I don't exist consciously as me as Umberto during those times that my body does okay that was one thing and it actually in a weird way helped me because I'm like oh, I'm dying all the time and not only that then I started thinking five seconds ago I was quote-unquote alive I was thinking of myself as being alive like when I started saying this sentence that me doesn't exist will never exist again 
so then the other thing I started looking at photos of me when I was younger. <laughs> that me doesn't exist, will never exist again. And of course, we have the continuity, and that's why we feel well. No, but I'm still here. And so, and then the last thing was uh, talking to my grandpa, actually Papa Val, whom you met, right? And hearing his stories when he was younger. Because again, I wasn't there. Not only was I not there, this is a whole life he lived that at some point he will die and it'll be very sad. And if he had death anxiety, he'd have been like, oh God, I might die someday. But he lived this whole life. And there is experiences there that I never got to experience. I will never get to experience. I can only hear about them and not even all of them, just a little bit about it. But he lived that life. And so the combination of all those things gave me little like, Legos to build up a like a little edifice of like, all right, yeah, it's it's kind of terrifying, but here you are in the moment. Yeah, three three seconds plus or minus. <laughs> yeah, I'm guessing that those resonate with some people for sure because I've heard other people say that they don't res those don't resonate with me at all. When you talk about that, I'm just like that doesn't that doesn't comfort me at all. Um, but there's a piece of this that I do try to apply, which is that you were saying I wasn't there for those experiences, so. I'm not there for a lot of experiences. So the fact that I won't be there after death for a lot of experiences shouldn't really bother me that much. And that's, I think, a part of some people's death awareness is a little bit of narcissism, which is self-centeredness, essentially. Of, yep. <clears throat> But it's like severe FOMO entitlement or something. Yeah, this this approach to life of like, well, I deserve to be a part of everything that matters because that's how I'm basically oriented in life. And to die means that I'm being denied what I'm entitled to or something. And so that's another piece of it. Getting back to your other thing that I agree that I resonate with, which is be in the moment. Don't think about what you're going to miss out on. Anyway, other kinds of tips are try to accept that you're going to die and accept death awareness as well. Also connect with others emotionally and physically. And this is a big one. Because this is also living in the moment. When you're connecting with others and you feel fulfilled relationally, then for a lot of people that actually will massively reduce their death awareness and anxiety. That's funny because that one actually triggers me. <laughs> right. um, I, I've noticed this more as I've aged that I didn't used to think about this at all. But lately I've noticed there's been a few times where I'll be like with someone and I'll be in the moment and then I'll think, oh, this is so nice. And then the thought will creep in, oh no, but I won't have this forever. In fact, I won't have this version of this ever again. <gasps> but that's not living in the moment. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I'm just saying like it, what triggered it was being with someone in a moment. But you're, was, not, but that, but you're not being with them. You know what I mean? Like if you're truly with them well, is yeah. what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's, 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 it's tricky because it's like, it's the whole, like if you're playing piano and you're just mindlessly going, it's perfect. As soon as you're aware that you're mindlessly playing piano, you're no longer mindlessly playing piano and you might fuck up. Right. And it's that kind of thing. The last thing that I do all the time, and this is the, probably the biggest one, is to have meaning and purpose in your life. For me, this podcast provides a lot of meaning and purpose in my life. It, the podcast has really taken over my life in a lot of ways. Because uh, it provides a lot of meaning and purpose. When I wake up in the morning, I'm like, okay, what am I going to do today on this podcast? And my mission on the podcast is to try to make a positive difference in the world. 
And when I have death awareness now, I will eventually get to this place, sometimes a second later, with, well, I ask myself, am I doing, am I wasting my time with the time I have left on this planet? Am I wasting my time? And I will say, no, I'm not wasting my time. Not, not a single second. I'm not wasting a single second of my life. I am doing, if I was to die tomorrow, I'm doing exactly what I should be doing. And there's nothing better, I think, than what I could be doing. Now, I'm not saying there aren't other things I could be doing, but with the time I have and the ability I have, I believe that this is what I'm doing. And maybe it'll change in five years, but for now, today, this is what I should be doing. And that provides tremendous comfort to me. For some people, it might not, but for me, it does. It means like, yeah, I'm going to die. And... That will be sad. But as death comes, I will know that I did not waste my time. And I guess there's also kind of like a higher element here as well of I am trying to serve the universe. And and not in a grandiose way, not like I sort of matter to the universe because I don't really. But in my tiny little one in, you know, one seven billionth of a, of a way <laughs> I contribute to the human race. Yeah, no. So that, that part absolutely resonates with me and, and is, is my core philosophy. I, I've, ex, I've expunged on this a little bit before, but it's essentially we have, we only have one choice. <laughs> we have one choice and it's either you're going to move things forward or you're going to not, you know, it's, I call it create or, or destroy, right? Zero or one. And, that's it. And then you could say, well, but I'm so little, so insignificant. Yeah, yeah. So is everything else in the universe. And it all adds up together in one direction or the other. So that's your choice. And so if your choice is like, yeah, I'm just going to not. Well, you've made your choice. You're, you're, you're a zero. That's fine. So I, and I think you do too clearly, we're like, no, no, you know what? We're going to try. We're going to do a one on this. And I'm, I'm adding my one to the pile of ones. And who knows where this universe experiment thing goes but i'm adding my one to the pile and that's my one and yes that helps because it's like if i do nothing else i've added my one yeah and it sort of believes that there is some meaning in the universe in a unknown what that meaning is but it sort of supposes there it's based on this supposition that there is meaning outside of us (laughs) There is something yep. bigger. What is that meaning? It's, you know, you can make up all sorts of things or say lots of different things. But, but I think it, as you talk about it, do you recognize that? Because that's not usually in line with at least your explicit belief system as an atheist. Well, no, no, because that's different than believing in a God, right? So, like, I, have, I, I think I've talked about this. So, like, I've come to the realization years ago that... Um, that this this thing that you need faith the faith you need is that your contribution to the universe in the direction of creation not destruction matters why does it matter for what that's the faith you have no idea you can't have an idea you will never know yeah. that's the thing and uh now like what, what would be a mean, what would be a yeah. non-theist manifestation of that meaning 
Oh, uh, a non-theist manifestation of the meaning? Like, your positive contributions to the world, oh, how might that it, manifest? It, it, it actually, so in the, in the grand, grand scheme of things, I don't believe it's technically possible to have a meaning, but in the more localized sense, it could be anything from, uh, you know, the, the universe, this whole idea of like, the universe needs to eventually evolve to a point where it can survive, because if it doesn't evolve to that point, it won't survive. And so if me, if I don't do my part, humans die off as well. And if every other little tendril of progress in the universe dies off, the universe won't evolve to where it needs to, and it will die off. So if anything, I'm just doing my little part to keep the universe alive. That's one version of it. Now, why does the universe have to stay alive? There can be no meaning. And because if you say, well, it's because it's a simulation by the end. Okay, but why are the aliens? Oh, it's because they're God. Oh, yeah, but why the God? If you go down that road, there can be no meaning. And that is the same realization in, in a much grander way than I will die. Once you're like, there can be no meaning, but I'm still going to play. That's powerful. You're blowing my mind. Getting to Patron V's specific questions. How does exposure therapy work with death anxiety? Well, the way that it works is obviously you can't kill yourself to expose yourself <laughs> to death, but you can expose yourself <laughs> to the uh, to the notion of not existing. And I think that's what I've done effectively, and it has helped, is to hear other people's death anxiety and to contemplate my own, you know, to... To not avoid it, to not just run away from it constantly through alcohol or, you know, something else to, to avoid thinking about it, you know. Um, the more I thought about it, the further down the road I got to the place where I am now, which is a place that I, it doesn't really plague me the way that it would occasionally when I was younger. Uh, you, also, know, you said, oh, sorry. Go ahead. You said something interesting uh, a little bit ago about... Uh, this kind of grandiose notion of like, oh, I need to be involved in everything. And and it occurs to me that, uh, I think I told you the story when I was little, one time I woke up from a nap and I heard downstairs my grandma and my cousins were having a grand old time. And I felt so angry because I felt like I had missed out. And how dare they live while I'm asleep? You know, that was a real feeling I felt. And it's basically death anxiety. Like, how can the world go on if I'm not here? And, and I will say that, that over time, as I've gotten older, I've become subtly less narcissistic, <laughs> just a little bit, just enough to where I'm like, maybe it's okay if something's happened without me. Yeah. But it's a hard thing to come to. <laughs> right. You also ask Patron V, uh, and how can you stop catastrophizing something that is real, inevitable, and final for us all? Uh, right. So there are... There are two different cures to anxiety through cognitive therapy and behavioral therapy. One is to challenge the rationality of it. So if someone says, I'm terrified of, you know, when I'm on a bridge, the bridge might collapse and I'm going to die. Okay. So when you evaluate the rationality of that concern, it's very quick to come to the conclusion that that's, a, that's an irrational fear. It doesn't make any sense. The chance of that happening is essentially zero. So there's no sense. And so you want to combat that anxiety by telling yourself that's irrational. It's not going to happen. It kind of feels like it's going to happen, but I know it's not going to happen. 
that kind of thing. Similar to when you have to have a flu shot or have a little bit of a blood draw. Your body thinks it's the end of the world, but that's irrational. It's fine. Nothing's going to happen. Essentially, the risk of anything permanently bad happening is zero. The, but there are other okay. kinds of fears. Can I add one thing to that? Is yeah. that you also, if you get in the game of second guessing the universe, it's a, you, you can't win that game. Like if I don't take this road, I'll be safer. Well, you don't know. You'll go down this road and get run over by a different car. Like you can't second guess the universe because you have no idea what the randomness is going to throw at you. Well, you can make viable predictions. Like if I go across this bridge, it's likely to be okay. And if I decide not to go on the bridge and sort of climb on a rope to avoid the bridge, then my chances of dying go up. Anyway, the point is, is that you try to evaluate the rationality of, of the notion. But some fears are totally rational. Like, I'm afraid of dying. Well, you are going to die. Or I'm afraid that my spouse might eventually cheat on me and leave me. Well, that might happen. Like, it, it happens sometimes. Or I'm afraid that I might get sick and throw up in the middle of a theater. It's unlikely to happen, but it could happen. It's a, you know, it's a possibility. I'm afraid that if I give a speech tomorrow in front of all my coworkers that I'm going to freeze up and not know what I'm going to say. It's possible that could happen. So you don't challenge the irrationality of those. You challenge the usefulness of thinking about it. We made a whole episode about the decision-making process regarding how worried one should be about COVID when COVID first came to the United States back in March. We made a whole episode about like, I can't remember where the title was. I, I was always the make, I always make health the titles. anxiety or something. No, well we made health anxiety. And then we made oh, another episode about like yeah, yeah. COVID feelings, decision-making or something. Yeah. Anyway, um, coronavirus feelings, coping. Anyway, <laughs> um, I always make the titles and I never remember them. It's similar to I write the lyrics for my own songs and I can't remember my own lyrics. <laughs> Stacy will tell me the lyrics to my own song sometimes. And I'll be like, huh? Anyway, I'm just not very good with words, honestly. But anyway, so in that episode, I developed this system and roughly what it is, is you... You have a fear, you have a feeling, and you value it. When, if you, let's say you have, you, know, you have a fear of death. You have a fear of not existing. You have a fear of people dying around you. At the, the very first step is, it's good that I have this fear because that's what it is to be human. Yeah. And my, my emotions were designed to help me. So let's use them in a helpful way. So don't, so don't fight it. So it's okay. And and clearly the fear of death keeps us alive constantly. Right. And, and it's, it's rational to want people around you to live and not to suffer. It's rational to want to stay on earth and enjoy life. It's, it's fine. Um, so don't fight against the basis of the condition. Okay. So the next thing you do is you go, okay, well, what is this? What's the, what is the emotion? Okay. It's fear. Okay. Fear of what? Not existing. Fear of people dying around me. Okay, that's good. What should, when you're afraid of something, like you get close to a snake and your fear goes up, what does it motivate you to do? Well, it motivates you to get away from the snake. The, your fear helps you. If you don't have fear as you approach the snake, you don't know to move away and you get bit by a snake, you die. 
when you get close to the edge of a cliff, you get more afraid and you move away from the, from the cliff. When someone is ranting and raving on the street with a knife, you get afraid and you protect your kids and you drive away. Fear is good. So you have a fear of death. What is the fear telling you to do? Well, you can't say run away from death. I mean, you could say maybe it's like, okay, well, maybe health wise, you try to do your best job you can, but death is inevitable. So you can't run away from death, but what is it maybe that you're really, that your emotions are trying to tell you something? Because for me, I'll tell you what it was telling me was, are you living in the moment? Are you living a life of meaning? And are you physically and emotionally connected to other human beings? Because the more I became those things, the less death anxiety I had. I didn't know it at the time. That's what my death anxiety was telling me. But that's what my death anxiety was telling me. Interesting. So use your emotions to motivate. Now, once you have a plan, you say, okay, well, here are the, here are the five things I'm going to do that my death anxiety is, is telling me to do. I need to have meaning in my life. I need to connect with other people. I need to seek out other stories of death. I need to um, maybe develop a will and testament or something, or I need to be healthier with my diet or something. Okay, make that plan. After that plan, and that feels good, you have any excess anxiety, that's the excess that you want to target as like, you need to get rid of that somehow. That's, that's the bad part of the emotion. The emotion was good up until you made a plan and you feel solid about that plan. Anything left over, either you need more plans or a different sort of plan, anything beyond that is excess. And it's things that you want to target. Often, if you address those, that plan in the beginning long enough, you don't have any excess. Like that, that was the case for me. But if you have excess, then that's the part you want to target and say like mindfulness techniques of just like, oop, it just popped in my head. I'm going to let it go. Oh, I just had another notion pop into my head, but I decided that's excess anxiety because it didn't help me develop a plan. I already developed a plan. That's excess anxiety. I'm not going to think about it because it's not helpful. It doesn't, that, that extra anxiety does nothing for me. <laughs> and I feel like people don't have that system because they just try to deny their anxiety and try to get rid of it and shame themselves and, and isolate and feel alone in their anxiety. And they don't value their anxiety, talk about it, develop a plan, and then target the excess. Does that make sense, Berto? Yep. I like it. I like that, that system. Final, I think, I think you've, you've presented that system for some other context. Before, yeah, it was coronavirus. It was yeah, coronavirus. yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, the thing I referred to three and a half minutes yeah. ago? Uh, finally, sounds familiar. <laughs> that sounds, I, I mean, I swear to God, like... You talked about that at some other point. <laughs> a final email here, interesting, about shopping cart theory from PJ Way, or say, sorry, Patron J Way in Michigan. Patron J Way. Blue J Way? Yeah. Uh, there's a founded on LA. <laughs> I mean, come on. People say, like, every Beatles song is awesome, but come on. <laughs> there's some. Talking about a Beatles, Beatles song by George Harrison. You talk crap about any George Harrison song, you're going to get a lot of hate mail. But anyway, yeah. Uh, email says, I was wondering if you could talk 
a little about shopping cart theory. It is, a widely recon- it is widely recognized that putting your cart back at the grocery store is the right thing to do. So I would like to know why you think people do not do the right thing in these scenarios. Are people that don't do this bad members of society? If you are familiar with sharp shopping cart theory, I would love to hear your thoughts. End of email. Berto, have you heard of this thing, shopping cart theory? No. So let me, let me I found it, I'd never heard of it before I read it on, on Reddit here. Let me read it here. Uh, the shopping cart is the ultimate litmus test for whether a person is capable of self-governing. To return the shopping cart is an easy, convenient task and one which we all recognize as the correct, appropriate thing to do. To return the shopping cart is objectively right. There, is no, there are no situations other than dire emergencies in which a person is not able to return the cart. Simultaneously, it is not illegal to abandon your shopping cart in the parking lot. Therefore, the shopping cart presents itself as an apex example of whether a person will do what is right without being forced to do it. No one will punish you for not returning the, the shopping cart. No one will fine you or kill you for not returning the shopping cart. You will gain nothing by returning the shopping cart. You must return the shopping cart out of the goodness of your own heart. You must return the shopping cart because it is the right thing to do, because it is correct. A person who is unable to do this is no better than an animal, an absolute savage who can only be made to do what is right by threatening them with a law and the force that stands behind it. The shopping cart is what determines whether a person is good or bad member of society. Umberto, (laughs) what do you think? I mean, I... I like the grandio- grandiosity of the theory. I think it, it oversteps its boundaries a bit there at the end. Um, so I, I'll say this. So growing up when I was a kid in Colombia, um, I saw this sim- symptom, not with shopping carts, just like with everything, all the time. People would run stoplights, red lights. They would constantly honk their horn all the time, everywhere. There's a lot of gra- graffiti in Bogota, too, There right? was graffiti. And, and people, littering. Wasn't there a lot of littering? T- tons of littering. The streets were crazy littered. Uh, when you would go to a store, people were trying to, like, ch- overcharge you. Or you would try to underpay. Uh, like, just everyone was always trying to get one up on the other person. And it was cultural. And then you're like, oh, those, all these Colombians must just be bad people. Well... And I, as I grew up, I thought, like, why is that, man? And, and that's one of the things I looked up to about the United States when I was little. I was like, well, when I would visit or when I lived here, it seems like on average, more people tended to follow the rules. Uh, and I was like, why is that? Um, okay, so it's not perfect by any means. But, but one of the reasons is because the way that these two places, these two areas got conquered was different. In, in Latin America, it was sort of like a renter's mentality. The soldiers came from Spain to grab all the riches, take them back, and then some people stayed behind. And, and it was incredibly oppressive. And so everyone was actually literally always fighting for scraps and trying to get one up on the other because it was a dangerous place and it was a very stratified society and huge wealth inequalities from the start. In the States, the people that came here just kind of killed off the people that were here. And then they themselves sort of like, sort of got along with each other and they were here to stay. So 
it's sort of like renters versus owners. And so like, this is my simplified notion is that here more people were like, well, I'm here. This is my land. This is my thing. Uh, so yeah, of course I'm going to pick up the trash because I don't want to, I don't want my house to get dirty. Uh, whereas in a lot of these other places, it was like, man, I don't know whose, whose job it is, but I barely am surviving. So I'm certainly not going to put any more energy than I have to into surviving and looking out for me and mine. Um, so I did, I, yeah, I never liked that. I never seen, liked seeing that. I see a lot more of that nowadays here. I see a lot of renters here. A lot of people who just don't give a crap about norms if they can get away with it. Uh, and I, I agree, like the shopping cart is a perfect example. If someone doesn't have the common decency to just return the thing, it doesn't present them in a good light. I don't think they're immediately like the worst parts of society, but it's certainly not a good indicator. So I sort of agree with the theory. <laughs> so there are various social... Well, first off, I just want to say that your analysis of Bogota versus Seattle is fascinating, or Tacoma, I suppose. And... It's or New York, United States, and Bogota uh, is fascinating. I I never thought about that, but that is I think brilliant, and I can absolutely see that. And I like it because it privileges the social psychology phenomena that a lot of people just either don't recognize or don't want to recognize. They'll just say, "Well, obviously, Colombians are just you know." immoral, immature people out, you know, they're selfish people in Bogota don't care about it. They don't have empathy. You know, that that's, you'll, you'll hear people say that. Um, so why would some people leave the shopping cart while other people would not? Uh, well, there are various social psychological theories at play. So the question is, if someone leaves the shopping cart in the parking lot, uh, as opposed to people who return it. Is this an indication about personality? Can you generalize that behavior to some broader aspect of their personality and thus m- other behaviors? So what this shopping cart theory proponent is essentially saying is if someone leaves the shopping cart in the parking lot, they are also cheating and lying. They don't care about other human beings. They will take a $20 bill out of your wallet if they could. Out of your baby's mouth. (laughs) They will not do their part to reduce carbon footprint. They will not donate to charity. That's essentially what they're saying. But they're not saying that explicitly because if they did, they know they would have to open themselves up to empirical science. What this shopping cart theory is saying is essentially nothing, I wanted to say. They, you know, they're saying the shopping cart is what determines whether a person is a good or bad member of society. Well, what is a good or bad member of society? Once you start to define that and codify it, then you can measure against it. And whoever developed this theory has not done that scientific research. <laughs> They've just made a claim of shopping cart in the parking lot means you're a bad member of society. It's a litmus, a litmus test of your morality. I mean, well, I wonder how seriously they meant it as opposed to tongue-in-cheek. I bet you anything people believe this, by the way. And by the way, there's a, a YouTube guy. I can't remember what he's called, but all he does is he goes around to... He lives in the South somewhere because he has an accent, you know, like Tennessee or something. And he... I think so, anyway. And he goes around different parking lots and he finds people who leave their cart out and he makes sure that they're not like 
handicapped or something and they they have to you know they they find able-bodied people who are just leaving their their cart out and he walks up to them while filming them and says uh oh sir you just earned a badge of uh you are now one of he has like this magnetic um a bumper sticker that he slaps on the car on the back of the car and he <laughs> says you are now in the you know whatever club or something or you you're you're a bad person sir because you left the shopping cart <laughs> and the people the best ones that get posted are the people who fight back you know they're just like yeah, yeah. you know get out of my face and and he this guy is a master of verbal judo like oh wow he's just like well sir i don't know i don't understand what my mother has to do with the situation you know he just he, yeah, has, yeah. The, he has the perfect comeback <laughs> sir uh, all I'm saying is you just left the card out and I just think that that's wrong, sir. I, I don't think that that, I don't think it means that we have to get into a fight. I'm just pointing this out. I'm, I'm just a, <laughs> I'm just a caring citizen that wants people to do their part for society. Like it's a hilarious YouTube channel. <laughs> I'll have to check that out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so is it an indication of personality? Well, it's possible. I would want to see the research on it. It's possible that people who leave the shopping cart out, are more psychopathic, are more immature, etc. But probably not a strong association, by the way. Well, and I, I guarantee it, like I'll put great amount of money that more poor people would leave it than, than wealthier people. Because what happens is when you're poor and you grow up in a, in a dilapidated neighborhood and your house has problems and you just kind of learn from a very young age that nothing that I do seems to matter because shit goes to shit and like people don't seem to be able to repair it. People don't, then it's, you're going to have a very different view of the world. So you're going to be like, no, I'm not going to return this card. Cause like I have bigger problems in my life. Uh, and so it's kind of an entitled position as much as I was saying, like it's a good litmus test. It's an entitled position um, to say, Oh, you know, that person left the cart and that's because they're a bad person. Well, it could be because they're a disadvantaged person in this society too. Right. Right. There's so many different reasons why people would consider it to be not a immoral to leave the cart out. And I'll say that when I was younger, I was kind of one of those people. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, I'm not anymore. In fact, I'm one of those people who actually will go across the parking lot to get an errant cart and put it away. It It just feels better. I hate like when me and my wife are walking the dog and there's like a, <laughs> there's actually a tree that is being kind of engulfed by a bigger tree. So it's a small spruce pine yeah. tree that is being totally overtaken by a bigger cedar tree. And whenever we walk by that situation, I always try to help that spruce to kind of get out into the sun <laughs> Another thing that I'll do is when I see pebbles in the road, I always kick the pebbles off of the road because when nice. a car runs over it, you know, that thing can come shooting out and hit a car or a person. And it just right. takes a little bit of effort to kick that pebble back to the side of the street. And, you know, it just it just feels better. And I don't have to do it, obviously. I don't get a reward. In fact, my wife kind of laughs at me. But it's when I was younger, though, I did leave the cart out at times if it was too far away. And I'll tell you, the reason why I did it was I thought of it as, well, that's, it's kind of a pain in the butt to take the cart back. And I know that that employee guy will come out He's here eventually. Someone's going to do it. Yeah. It's sort of like when 
uh, you're at a restaurant and you get a bunch of crumbs on on the table. You know, you're eating some crumbly thing, and a lot of the crumbs are falling onto the table. Right. Well, it's gonna, you know, someone else is gonna have to clean up those crumbs on the table. Yep. It'll be a little bit of extra work that that bus person has to do or that waiter has to do. Right. You could, if you were moral, sweep up those crumbs, put them on your plate, and then put the plate back on the table, right? You could do that. You could do that. But most people don't. Right. Why do you, because you're like, well, someone else will clean that up. Yeah, just, you could not pee in the pool, too. <laughs> right. So, so but, the, but actually, the, you, you, you hit on something also important. I was saying, you know, wealth versus not wealth. The other thing is, and by the way, I'm not saying like rich people are better. I, I was simply pointing out that if you live in a disadvantaged situation, you may have different uh, kind of values on property and stuff. But the same thing is between young and old. Like the, the longer you've lived, it's more likely that you've learned to appreciate that some things cost money and that right. you have to struggle to get them and that right. you might, you know, right. have to mow your lawn. Yeah. When I, for me anyway, when I was 13 and... 21 it just i thought yeah some someone's going to be mildly inconvenienced by this but it's, it's not, not going to be me <laughs> but, and it's not that bad and 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 the the cost benefit analysis here is i'm just going to leave it now yeah. i would never just i was never a monster and i would never just leave it in the middle of the parking lot i would always try to find like a little uh you know parking strip to kind of <laughs> Because I didn't want it to be roaming around in the parking right. lot, you know. Seattle has a lot of hills, and so it, it's natural to think this thing <laughs> so is going to get some work. <laughs> yeah. Um, so was I immoral back then? Um, you know, according to the Psycho- shopping cart theory, I was. But I wasn't immoral. I was nice to people. I was uh, gave to charity. I didn't exploit other people. You know. So yeah. so what's going on? Okay. So there are a lot of different. Uh, the theories we could talk about, but the main one I want to talk about is essentially that social interactions determine our sense of morality. Morality and behaviors associated with what is considered good behavior is not something that springs from the earth. It's something that is decided upon by societies. Like in Bogota, when Berto was growing up, perfectly law-abiding good people were uh, running red lights and, and littering. Why? Because the society that they lived in normalized it, and there were other factors at play as well in terms of like, it wasn't just like, well, it's normal to litter, but a a grander notion of, you know, eat or be eaten, essentially. And you're either either someone who survives or you're someone who doesn't survive. And so you got bigger fish to fry than worrying about, because, you know, Say you seek out that garbage can. Well, what if someone mugs you on the way to the garbage? You don't have time for that kind of stuff. You yeah. know? Like not, not to mention, there were no garbage cans. <laughs> right. Which, which is a broader issue of like... Right. Of like there's no money yeah. to invest in society and blah, yeah. blah. Yeah. Right. So, and there's a lot of examples of this. Like, for example, veganism. If in a certain circle of Americans, a Birdo included, to eat animals is immoral murder it's wrong it's completely irrational to do what we're doing to chickens to put the carbon f- footprint regarding beef production 
this is this is immorality at its highest level. And then you have another group of people who eat pork and beef and chicken and and they're totally moral individuals. You'll have vegans that'll put the cart away and not put the cart away, and you'll have meat eaters who will put the cart away and not put the cart away. Okay. I guarantee you no vegans leave that cart out of place. <laughs> That's such a vegan thing to say, by the, <laughs> by the way. Um, climate change. Some people believe that it is totally immoral that we're not doing enough, and other people, other good human beings, are like, what's the big deal? Swearing is, an, is a great example. So, Berto, you and I particularly me, swear, and it's not immoral to me at all. It doesn't When I hear people swearing, it doesn't affect me. It's just talking to me. Right. When I swear on the podcast, some of our listeners get real upset. <laughs> and they're like, <laughs> why are you using those words that's degrading to you? It's yeah. wrong to do that. Like, why are you doing that? Okay. Well, in my circle, my wife, my friends... Everyone around me, swearing is, this is normal part of life. For other people, swearing is, you know, it's wrong. You, you're not supposed to use that language, you know. So it's your social circle, it's your social interactions. How you vote. Some people believe it's immoral to vote one way or the other. Another good example is giving to the ACLU. If you give to the ACLU, some people say it's immoral not to give to the ACLU. Other people think ACLU is a terrible organization. Uh, a, a really good example, if I might say so myself, is tipping 25% during the pandemic. So a lot of us are getting food delivered now, right? Are you getting food delivered, Berto? Oh, yes, all the time. So there's always that option of like, how much do you tip your delivery person? Right. And the latest trend is, look, you know, the economy is bad. You want to give back to the community. You want to tip a lot. You know, these people... They probably had right. to quit their job as an engineer to, be, to deliver food for, you know, Grubhub now. So be a good citizen and spread that money around. Keep the economy going. Right. And so it's, you know, customary now to tip as much as 25%, which was not customary six months ago, you know. No. Especially to delivery drivers. And so, so for me, when I see that button, I, I click it. I'm like, okay, an extra... Three dollars, like for sucker for twenty five percent. I'm like, I'm like, let's do it. What do you do? Yeah, I, I tip. I, I had the same same idea from the yeah. start. I was like, all right, look, if I'm going to be the privileged person staying at home and being able to work from home, uh, I'm going to at least tip really yeah. well. <laughs> yeah, and also these people are putting themselves in harm's way in some yeah. ways. So now I was with my family on a Zoom call last weekend, and one of my close family members who I consider to be a very moral, nice person, he's like one of the nicest people I know, he was talking about how he saw that button, and he it, and, and it defaulted to that button. He ordered pizza or something, and it, the default was 25%, so you had, <laughs> you had to click away from 25% to be yeah. lower than that. And he was outraged. He was he's like... Gripe of wrathing it. Yeah, he was like 25% for a pizza delivery? That's insane. That's insanity. <laughs> and everyone in my family agreed, you know? I don't know if they were disagreeing <laughs> with him to support with him. While I was being quiet in the corner going, um, 
but <laughs> do you not know what these people are going through? And so two, you know, different groups of people, completely different ideas of what is quote unquote moral or not. Well, I've met a lot of members of your family and they are all criminals. <laughs> yeah. Uh, stopping for people at crosswalks. That's another litmus test you could say. It's like right. someone that stops for people on crosswalks, moral. Someone who doesn't, immoral. An a-hole, okay? <laughs> uh, not buying purebred animals. What? That's another oh. Wait, like what a, does that mean? Well, there's different you know, people. There's people who will buy like a purebred poodle or a purebred pit bull or a purebred... Is that good or bad? Well, it's in my book, it's kind of bad because one, it raises the chance of genetic, you know, problems. It also often leads to uh, changes in dog uh, physiology that is not natural. You know, it's not natural for a pug not to have a nose. (laughs) You know, it's not natural for a bulldog to breathe through a nose that has been selectively bred to essentially be 3% the size of of a normal dog nose. Like it, I think that's just cultural. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, if we had humans who essentially had no nose and were wheezing all the time and we were bred that way, we'd say, why did you breed us that way? Well, because you look cute. You know, now all the bulldogs owners out there are yelling at me, but so that's where I stand. I, I'm on, I'm on side. Let's, Let's be careful about the way we breed animals sure. so that the animals don't suffer. But I also am not a vegan. <laughs> so, so, but I would never claim that either that someone on the other side was immoral because I understand that it's just the, what I've decided upon. Okay. Now, well, shop- I wonder if it comes down to full understanding of both the ramifications and then still doing it consciously. Uh, and the pattern of continuing to doing it. Like, you know what I mean? Because like, there's got to be a limit. There's got to be some threshold where you go, okay, no, that's not moral. <laughs> right. So let's go back to the shopping cart thing. As you said, you know, for some people, their life is suffering so much that they're just like, look, I have bigger fish to fry. <clears throat> so, so that's one thing. Another thing is like, well, you're younger and you just don't really understand how you impact the world. That's another thing. Another thing is, is that um, they've never heard anyone get upset about it in terms of the shopping cart. Like to them, say everyone in their circle sometimes leaves the cart out when the receptacle for the carts is too far away. Right. And they've literally never heard an employee get upset about it. They've never heard anyone say, hey, you should probably put that away. There's, there's certainly pockets of people who that's how they are. Yeah. So it's just not really on their, you know, if they, if they thought about it for half a second, they'd be like, well, huh, it'd probably be better if I did this. But They've just never heard, you know, like there's all sorts of things that um, I learned over the years. It's like, oh, I did like one of the things that I do now is I always take whenever I have popcorn and drinks at the movies, I always throw it away afterwards. Right. Instead but, of leaving it in the. But for years, decades, I never did that because no one did it. One. Right. And I never heard an employee say, oh, could you, you could you jerk. take it back? Yeah. <laughs> But then this one time, I don't remember when it was, but it was probably like 15 years ago. I think I heard one employee, maybe it was like a friend or something. It was like, 
Yeah, it just gets ridiculous. Everyone just leaves their shit out all the time. They just, they just, <laughs> they just expect someone to come by and pick oh, it up. And it was at that moment I was like, huh, yeah, geez, really? Okay. And so now I never leave things behind. So for years, just right. be, uh, now if I would have thought about it for half a second, I would have been like, well, it's probably better to throw it away. You just never thought about it. But I, but I never considered that someone would get annoyed with it, you know? Right. Another is, is that you've never been in their shoes before. So, for example, former waiters will tip more. And walkers stop for pedestrians more. Right, right. And this is something that I noticed a lot. When I, was de- when I lived downtown, I was a pedestrian. I never drove anywhere. I'd, I walked to the grocery store. I'd walk to Whole Foods. I'd walk to the, you know, to the movie theater. I'd walk to the right. bars. I'd walk to friends' houses. And I quickly learned there were two different types of drivers. There were the types of drivers that were clearly aware of the morality of watching out for me while I was crossing a crosswalk or you know, yeah. doing something. And then there were people who seemingly had no care for the fact that I was trying to cross the street <laughs> or that I was near the street, you know? Right. Like, and in fact, get angry. Like, yeah. Get out like, of the way. I'm driving here. Yeah. Or, you know, I'm crossing the street and they're, they're edging forward. You know that thing that people do? Oh, yes. And it's like... I do that all the time. <laughs> it's like, one, why are you doing that? It's a total waste of your energy. <laughs> Two, you're scaring the bejesus out of me. <laughs> like, yeah. like, you're moving and I'm three feet away. <laughs> like, why? It's like if someone was holding a knife and like they just kept getting closer and closer to you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing? And I would always kind of take note of what they looked like, right? And it's like the people who looked like they came from the city who probably did a lot more walking were much more respectful, whereas the people who seemed to come from out of town and probably didn't do a lot of walking in cities just didn't care. Those people aren't bad people. They're, they're, they just don't know what it feels like to be constantly at assault of cars <laughs> being around you. You know. Um, the other thing is, is that they might be modeled things differently. If your parents were the sort of people that said, hey, let's put, let's put the cart away, then you're going to be one of those people as opposed yeah. to the opposite. Like my dad was constantly on me about these social norms, throwing garbage away and stuff, because he was, he was incensed whenever he would see it. So um, I, cer- certain things, not everything, but certain things I learned from him, like, and like it became just like pattern. So littering is something I never ended up doing because of that. Um, but, you know, there's other things that <laughs> I didn't see him do or tell me not to do. Yeah. Littering is a good example because... In the 70s, in the United States, littering was a problem, like Bogota. Littering in the United States now is so much better. Yeah. Why is that? Well, because the government went on a campaign to change our culture. The, the crying Indian, the crying Native yeah, American. Yeah, I remember that. And I, I think Colombia must have learned from that because they ended up doing a campaign there, too. Right. And it worked. They had this song that was so catchy. Ponga la basura en su lugar. And everyone would know it. It's like, put the garbage in its place. And um, they had the commercials. And and they had this, like, feel good, like, take pride in your city, in your country. So if we had a jingle and we had a, you know, crying Native American. By the way, that guy was, like, Italian or something. He wasn't even Native American, (laughs) uh, if I remember right. Um, 
or he was Native American and he regretted it. Anyway, there's a whole sort of saga story behind that that commercial. If we had a whole campaign about putting away the cart, then we would see almost no one leave the cart out. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> by the way, the 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 thing that I remember about the anti-littering campaign in the 70s, was, and this was like early mid 70s, was there was these kids and they're like walking in a sort of a a, a field somewhere, and they they they're eating like a hamburger or something, and they they litter everywhere. <laughs> and then these these Muppets that, that were, you know, you know, the Muppets that were human, humans were inside. The oh, Mupp- yeah, yeah. The, the, Muppet the full-sized Muppets. Yeah. yeah. And there was this one, um, uh, it was kind of like a long commercial or it, maybe it was like a film that they would show in schools. Anyway, they, you know, the kids throw down the, the, the garbage and then these big Muppets, like five of them, and they're real kind of kind of scary <laughs> looking but kind of comical scary like a big uh, Oscar the Grouch kind of looking thing and they're like he just littered let's get him and I remember <laughs> that phrase being very repeated by all of us oh. kids of, that kid littered let's get him you know and then the, the monsters chase the kids and I remember that really affecting us you terrifying know? <laughs> yeah so by the way as you were describing the kids eating their hamburger and throwing Unbelievable. I haven't had McDonald's in 30 years, maybe. And yet all of a sudden, I could taste a Big Mac in my mouth. You got to go sometime, man. The French fries are divine, (laughs) by the way. Um, So the point is, is that, you know, pre-anti-litter campaign, the Americans weren't immoral. And post litter campaign, anti-litter campaign, people weren't more moral. It's just norms. It's awareness. Yeah. It's uh, social support. It's you're the weird one for for doing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it depends on the modeling. It depends on the social circle you're in. It depends on your own experiences. If you were a grocery store employee, you probably are the first person to put it away. Now, I actually read on Reddit because I actually looked this up on Reddit um, and someone commented and said, actually, I'm the opposite because as a grocery store employee, I put away thousands of carts by people who didn't leave it out. And so screw those guys. I'm leaving it out now too. (laughs) So out of, you know, anger, this other person is saying, I'm going to do, I'm going to pay it forward essentially. Um, so there's a lot of different reasons why someone would leave a card out. And I'm fairly certain that a very small, if at all signal could be a associated personality wise with that behavior. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I, I see it. (laughs) So my conclusion on the shopping cart theory is until I see the data, I'm going to speculate that it's probably BS. The final thing I want to say is. Um, so Berto, you know, do you know in Dungeons and Dragons, we, we play Dungeons and Dragons. I've heard of it. You're you, wearing a t-shirt. You might not know this chart, but in Dungeons and Dragons, they, they call this alignment where you're either good or bad. Oh yeah. yeah. Chaotic, neutral, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's, there's two axes. You have, you have good, neutral and evil, and then you have lawful, neutral and okay. chaotic. Yeah. So that results in nine different combinations. So starting from lawful good, neutral good, chaotic good, 
what is so the lawful good person what do they do with the cart lawful good not only takes their cart but looks around for other carts and takes those as well and then goes and offers to help the employee with their carts excellent <laughs> neutral good what would they do neutral good they take their cart yeah and they you know they take their cart what this chart says is that lawful good returns it to the store. Neutral good returns it to the the station the in, in the, the parking station. lot. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Chaotic good. What do they do? Chaotic good, like they don't mean bad, so they kind of like push it in the direction of the nearest thing, <laughs> but don't really close to what this person said. <laughs> they launch it into the corral. Oh yeah, that's that's what I. <laughs> uh, okay, lawful neutral. What do they do? Oh, lawful neutral basically takes the cart uh, with a straight face and doesn't enjoy it, but puts it in its place. That's it. And leaves. Uh, what this chart is, they return it to another store. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> true neutral. What would they do? A true neutral just walks away. Uh, they say return to the poor. Uh, chaotic neutral. What do they do? Chaotic neutral goes back in, buys more groceries, walks out without a cart, throws one of the things into the cart and leaves. <laughs> what this chart says is they return it to nature. Uh, lawful evil, what do they do? Okay, lawful evil returns it, but first smears some COVID on the handle. <laughs> they say unreturned, but neatly stacked with other unreturned carts. <laughs> uh, neutral evil, what do they do? They slam it into someone, but don't take pleasure in it. Close to what this person said. They just leave it in the parking space. <laughs> Chaotic evil. What do they do? They, they gather all the carts and they pretend to be in favor of people leaving their carts. And they charge money so that everyone will join their cause. And then when they've got all the money, they propel the carts to hit everyone that hit everyone that gave them money and disappear into the night. <laughs> That's better. But this one says they just throw it into a ditch. <laughs> All right, Berto, final word on today's long episode in which we talk about coronavirus, school, Black Lives Matter, death anxiety, and shopping cart theory. What's, uh, well, the, what's, the, what's the combining thread through this whole conversation? Thread. It's good and evil, man. The eternal battle of good and evil, where we realize in the third act, no, at the end of the second act, sorry, in the moment of darkness, we realize that good and evil are just social constructs. So all of third act, we're having to find meaning in our actions by stacking shopping carts because we realize that at least that's the one thing we can do with the remaining time we have left. <laughs> well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because... You deserve it.